It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Liz Clayman, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, May 13th, 2022. I'm Lisa Brady. Russia's war in Ukraine has been a real eye-opener for some world leaders. There was this mixed feeling amongst NATO allies with regard to how serious the threat of Russia is. I suspect that's mostly gone away at this point. People realize that Putin is an autocrat and a dangerous person, and we should take him seriously. I'm Chris Foster. The White House is marking a million American COVID deaths and warning of a new wave this fall and winter. We need to study the biggest public health intervention in human history so that we don't repeat many of the mistakes that resulted in a mental health crisis. And I'm Will Kane, and I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. It took less than three months for decades of strategy to unravel in Europe with Russian President Vladimir Putin blaming security concerns on Western nations while launching a war in Ukraine that's laid waste to cities, displaced millions of people, and led to international condemnation, sanctions, and allegations of war crimes, even genocide. It may also end up expanding NATO. I think we've been communicating also to the Russians that this may someday happen, and I think now the day has come. Nika Hatali is Finland's ambassador to the U.S., Finland, which has Europe's longest border with Russia and has collaborated with NATO for decades, now drawing an angry reaction from Moscow for its intention to apply for membership. Sweden ready to take the plunge, too. The White House says it would support both applications. This as Congress works on billions more dollars to help Ukraine. We've been very clear that we want to continue to help uh, the people of Ukraine and the Ukrainian armed forces defend themselves. And so that is going to require some additional resources. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says there's no telling how long the war could last with fighting now constantly concentrated in the eastern Donbass region, a shift in strategy made by the Russians after failing to hold gains elsewhere or to capture the capital, Kyiv. This has been a complete strategic failure for Vladimir Putin. Mark Esper is a former U.S. defense chief and author of a new book, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. You know, I said on the day of the invasion and back in late February that he had already managed to push uh, Ukraine into NATO's orbit. He managed to bring more NATO troops onto his border and he managed to unify NATO. And that was before we had any indication that Sweden and Finland might pursue alliance membership, which, as you suggest, are now on the cusp of doing so. Look, he's spelled all the way around and we're not even we haven't even spoken about the economic implications, right, of Countries around the world cutting off his uh, coal supply, his oil supply, and soon his liquid natural gas supply. So anyways, it's just been a complete disaster for him. You know, Russia's reaction to Finland's announcement in particular sounds like saber rattling, warning about military technical steps that could come in retaliation. Given the situation in Ukraine, though, what remaining military capability would Russia have right now if they wanted to make some kind of move against Finland? I mean, first of all, the response has to be what it is. It, it predictably a little bit of saber rattling. They certainly can't let it go and they can't ignore it. So they're going to have to say something about it. But you're right. Look, they're losing in Ukraine. Uh, it's, it's not like they have the means to start a second front in Finland. And uh, but that said, 
as soon as Finland and Sweden apply, I think we should immediately pull over top of them the umbrella of NATO protection politically. I mean, the treaty application process has to go through the Senate for us and for parliaments for other countries. But that doesn't mean we can't give them our political protection. And, and that's what I would do just to kind of reassure them and push back on Russia. Does Russia's army lose all credibility the longer the war in Ukraine goes on or in terms of its sheer size even is it still a force to reckon with like is the world in danger of going from potentially you know overestimating russia's military to maybe underestimating it in some way we certainly have to be careful of not doing that right we got to remember that they have a strategic nuclear arsenal that is very capable uh they have a, a capable navy Uh, The Air Force has underperformed clearly, and certainly the Army has as well. So I I still would not underestimate them, but it's clear that we overestimated their capabilities. And look, their problems now are not just with the Ukrainians, but you keep hearing story after story about Russian soldiers themselves refusing orders, sabotaging their own equipment, walking off the battlefield. They are clearly in, in bad shape right now. Mm hmm. You served as defense secretary for a year under President Trump. Based on your contacts with foreign counterparts during that time, are you surprised by Russia, you know, what they're saying and doing um, by the response in Ukraine uh, or by the world reaction and the NATO response? Well, in, in some ways, you know, we, we always knew that Putin had this aggressive nature. We saw him invade Georgia in 2008. He did invade Ukraine first in 2014. We had these frozen conflicts, if you will. And every time I would travel to Brussels for NATO during my 18 months or so as Secretary of Defense, we would talk about these issues and concerns. And and some of us, you know, saw that Russia was a threat. I mean, it was for me, it was one of our top priorities. I, I made implementation of the national defense strategy my number one focus. And that said that China was our top strategic adversary, followed by Russia. Uh, Frontline states in Europe, such as Poland and the Baltic countries, felt the same way, but other countries didn't. And this was a beef we had with Germany, for example, not taking Russia as seriously as we thought. And President Trump was right to push on them for not living up to their commitments to spend more on defense, for continuing the um, uh, Nord Stream 2 project. And so there was this mixed feeling amongst NATO allies with regard to how serious the threat of Russia is. I suspect that's mostly gone away at this point. People realize that Putin is an autocrat and a dangerous person, and we should take him seriously. The current Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, you know, says he wants to see Russian forces weakened. Have they been weakened significantly already, or is there a long way to go on that front? Well, they've clearly been weakened. I mean, depending on who's reporting you believe, they've at least lost hundreds of tanks, fighting vehicles, artillery systems, thousands upon thousands of soldiers killed, aircraft shot down, both fixed wing or rotary wing. Uh, I mean, just the material damage done to the military is devastating. It'll take them years to rebuild. If you have, you know, I work in the defense industry, I know what that's like. And then of course, we're talking about the harm done to the confidence morale of the forces itself and, and the generals, right? Their ability to lead. So when this is all said and done, which by the way, may take years, there's gonna have to be a major reckoning within Russia about the future of their military. With so much focus right now on Russia and the war in Ukraine, is the world paying enough attention right now to China? And is there anything the U.S. military should be doing now to prevent or prepare for a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan? Well, I do get concerned about uh, 
China and lack of focus on that as we, as most countries, zero in on Russia. And uh, that's obviously the conflict before us. But I'm confident that the U.S. military is paying close attention to what's happening in China and keeping an eye on the Taiwan Strait where something like that could happen. Got to be careful not to take our eye off of that ball as well, uh, because you bet that both Beijing and Taipei are taking lessons learned from what's happening on the battlefields of Ukraine and wonder, wondering what it means for some type of conflict between Taiwan and, and China. So it's something we need to be careful of. That means beefing up our defense budgets. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. But if you want peace, you got to have peace through strength so we can preserve this wonderful international order that has kept us relatively safe and prosperous for many years. This August will mark a year since the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Has the Taliban takeover been as catastrophic as it could have been for Afghans? Or do we even, you know, have a real handle on what's happening there right now? I think we have a lot of good people in the government and, and civil society as well who are watching what's happening in Afghanistan. I think you know, clearly they are not living up to <laughs> the promises they made. Uh, you know, I, I read recently where they're, of course, have denied girls the chance to go to school beyond a certain level. And now I think uh, I read where they're requiring women to go back into burqas, wearing burqas. So, look, they're, they're moving backwards, which is uh, what the, the opposite of what they promised. And I think, uh, unfortunately for them, for the people of Afghanistan, uh, it's 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 a return to what it was uh, prior to 2001. And uh, I wish it hadn't happened that way. I had opposed a precipitous withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, during my tenure, and um, we were able to forestall that some. But um, it's, it's it's just not optimistic right now for the people of Afghanistan. You have a book just out this week, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. Um, in it, you're critical of the former president and especially some of the ideas he floated. Why did you decide to write the book, though, rather than, for instance, to resign at the time? Well, it's a great question, and I addressed that in the first few pages of the, uh, of the book. Uh, why do good people why did they join the administration? Uh, why did they stay when conditions got really tough? Why did they not resign? And that was the issue I faced, you know, as, as my views increasingly diverged with President Trump's, as I faced some of these outlandish ideas being proposed by folks around him. And then, of course, June 1st, when we had unrest in the streets of D.C. and the president uh, proposed that we shoot the protesters, I really wrestled with, you know, what is my duty? What is... Uh, uh, to whom is my oath? And it's very clear, your oath is to the Constitution, not to a president, not to a party, not to a philosophy. And I thought that as long as I was in office, I could continue to advance a very positive agenda within the uh, uh, Pentagon, where we can continue to modernize the force, beef up cyber command, stand up space force, propose a new Navy, take care of our soldiers, uh, service members, and families. I could do all these things. And at the same time, I thought that I could be in place to push back on bad ideas, whether it was, you know, uh, putting a quarter million troops on the southwest border, shooting missiles into our neighbor, Mexico. I've been very successful in terms of pushing back on this and proposing other things. And so um, I thought my higher calling was to do that. And I wrestled with this. I spoke to my wife, friends, uh, consulted, frankly, with predecessors from both parties, uh, previous SECDEFs, and, and to include the late General Colin Powell. To a person, they all said, look, you got to stay. And the other, the other factor was I didn't know who was coming in behind me. And I was very concerned it would be, you know, an uber loyalist, if you will, who would 
who would act on some of these uh, outlandish ideas. So it's for all these reasons that, um, you know, I stayed. It doesn't mean I didn't wrestle with it. It would have been far easier for me to, to kind of walk away, but I just didn't think that was the right thing to do. Just one other thing. I'm wondering if you think the U.S. is ready for the wars of the future, um, cyber warfare, for instance. You know, you'd have to, you know, poke your way through each of the domains of warfare, as we say it. Um, so I think in cyber warfare, for example, we have a, a very good capability, the best in the world, no doubt. The question is, do we have sufficient numbers of those and, and sufficient authorities? And I think we could, you know, that was a question I would raise, but I think we have great capability there. We have very good capability in space and, and are getting better. And I think the establishment of the Space Force and Space Command under the Trump administration was a real step forward, a positive one. And uh, we will continue to build those capabilities. Um, I feel strong that the Army is on the right path, the, uh, uh, the other services as well. I'm very concerned about the Navy, however. We don't have, in my view, the right number, the right types of ships, uh, the right capacity to deal with China in the Indo-Pacific in the 21st century. So that's my biggest area of concern. And I think there's a lot more in terms of preparing for the future that we could do and should do. And I just don't see that we're there yet. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, best of luck to you with the new book. And thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This is Will Kane with your Fox News commentary coming up. President Biden's marking a million American COVID-19 deaths, ordering American flags thrown at half-staff at federal buildings. Today, we mark a tragic milestone here in the United States. One million COVID deaths. One million empty chairs around the family dinner table. Each irreplaceable irreplaceable losses. The president there addressing a global virtual COVID summit hosted by the White House. His administration is predicting a big wave of cases and deaths this coming fall and winter and pushing for more vaccination, testing and treatment options. The real number of COVID deaths, of course, will never be known and it depends on who you count. Whether or not it's um, 850,000 or 1.1 million, it's a tragedy. And either way, it's a, a significant, significant milestone that we're around. Dr. Marty McCary is a Fox News medical contributor and Johns Hopkins University professor. My concern is that we still don't measure accurately deaths for COVID versus with COVID and hospitalizations with COVID versus incidental, you know, for COVID and that kind of distinction. And that, as a result, a lot of these debates are going to cycle back in the winter next year when we definitely will see a bump in cases, uh, who knows to what degree. But we really should know that number. What is the best metric of the pandemic? It's hospitalizations for COVID. Yeah. I mean, the Biden administration is saying we might get 100 million COVID infections on this, in a wave of deaths this coming fall and winter. And as we've talked about before, at this point, case numbers aren't nearly as meaningful as they used to be if they ever were. I mean, for most of us, at least, uh, who, who people who are vaccinated, people who have natural immunity, um, it, it's hospitalizations and deaths that we should be looking at, right? That's right. And I'm glad you bring that up because you will see a, a number of ways numbers can be manipulated. Say, for example, a 300% increase in COVID cases next winter. You know, that could mean the case average is going from 
nine to 21 per 100,000. So I think people need to recognize cases are not the right measure. Look, most people will develop five to 20 infections at some point in their young life. And we don't say you have a 500 to 2,400% chance of getting COVID. We say, look, this is a um, a seasonal thing and it's mild the vast majority of the time. And for people who have immunity to COVID, we know you have a 99.99% level of protection against severe illness and death. Do you ever expect the kind of numbers that would lead to a return to mask mandates or work from home policies or shutting down schools policies? And what's the metric there? Just if hospitals get so slammed or if businesses are just so short staffed or schools are so so short staffed? Well, that should be the metric. But unfortunately, if you look at the CDC's metric for determining what's a low, medium or high level of COVID risk, they're still using case counts as part of that. Unfortunately, Uh, that's very concerning. And I do think you're going to see some places, probably in the blue states, uh, retreat into uh, zero COVID strategy strategies like school closures next year, ignoring the fact that we really have not had good data in the United States and in in Europe, we've seen schools open free and clear with no differences in transmission rates. Big study just done in Finland, looked at uh, provinces where there was schools open wide and clear versus masked, and there was absolutely no difference in transmission. We need to study the biggest public health intervention in human history so that we don't repeat many of the mistakes that resulted in a mental health crisis. Yeah, I mean, you you can clear this up uh, or, or expound on it. Uh, you tweeted something about um, the lack of National Institutes of Health funds at the beginning of the pandemic actually going toward research of the pandemic, right? I mean, so that just led to the zone getting flooded with all these opinions and half-truths or untruths because the research just wasn't there. I have a lot of patients and friends ask me, how did this become so politicized? Let me tell you, the original sin of the COVID pandemic was that when the infection came to the United States, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins at the NIH failed to fund the clinical research quickly to settle the unanswered questions. They could have done it in 24 hours, or within one week for some of these questions, how does it spread? Is it airborne or surface? Do masks work? Cloth masks versus quality masks. Uh, What's the um, most contagious period? When's the peak of viral shedding? How long do you have to quarantine for? Those questions could have been answered in a week. They were not our study out of Hopkins that just was published. I showed that they issued less than 2% of their grants in the year of the pandemic to study COVID clinical research. Um, They have $50 billion roughly, and they really did not study COVID research in a timely fashion. They failed to pivot. So as a result, we had a void of scientific data. And what filled that void was opinions, public opinions, political opinions, and medical groupthink that drove our policy, not scientific data that drove our policy. Uh, The Biden administration is pushing Congress for more money. Is there anything here that we actually can throw money at that would be helpful, like ventilation in schools where it's possible, et cetera, et cetera. Is there something that money can do? Look, we've thrown a ton of money for schools to improve their ventilation, and that money came a year ago. And where do we stand today? We're still having the same debates we had last time. So sometimes throwing good money after bad actually does not change the situation. Is there political will? Is there priority? Is the money managed well or poorly? That's where we need to look at our spending. We need to spend our money in a way that's smart. The $23 billion proposal right now 
to increase COVID funding on top of all the billions we've spent already is not a wise uh, allocation of that amount of money. For example, much of it will go towards the hyper-testing industry, this testing industrial complex that over-tests immune young students and other people like crazy all the time. It's not a great use of public health funds, especially when you have women who can't get prenatal vitamins in part of the country and a shortage on formula for babies. Um, some of that money is going to go to Paxlovid in low-risk vaccinated people. With that study that shows Paxlovid saved lives was in high-risk high unvaccinated people. Right. So we're spending money on what we call low value care. And final point, they say it's for a, another version of the vaccine that has not even been disclosed or under review at the FDA. So let's wait until we get that vaccine and then decide if we want to purchase it. We are back to, um, at least in some areas, a, a shortage of tests. And there are, there's a lot of kid crud going around. And we'll get into that where people might say, look, my kid's been sick for a week. It might be the flu. It might be a cough. It might be a cold or it might be COVID. And I want to know just to be a responsible citizen here, but uh, you can't find a test. Well, in, in some cases we need to test to figure out whether or not they've are going to have subsequent natural immunity, but this hyper testing of everybody for just one of the 20 respiratory viruses that circulate in society sometimes represents the medicalization of ordinary life. Mm -hmm. And so we've not really accepted the fact that respiratory viruses do cause common cold-like symptoms and circulate. So I would say what we're doing is not in a situation where we don't have enough tests, we're misallocating tests, over-testing people who are already immune and extremely low risk and have no reason to be tested. Got it. Where are you with masks on public transportation at this point? Look, I think if anybody has symptoms or they're exposed or extremely high risk, they should wear a mask. And we know one way masking is extremely effective. That was the failure of the Biden policy. And a lot of the masking policy was the failure to recognize that we should not have an all or nothing strategy. Masks should be used selectively for those who have symptoms or exposed or high risk. Yeah, but then you're trusting those people to actually do it. <laughs> That's right. There's yeah. no good solution sometimes, yeah. but that is where we yeah. land. Uh, the recommendation now is for a booster if you're over 50, the federal recommendation, I mean yours, I want to get yours, or if you're particularly high risk. What do you tell people on the lower end of that scale? People who, who are healthy people in their 50s say, do you get a, do you, is it worth it to get a booster? And if so, when? When is, the, when is it most advantageous to do so? Well, I can tell you the FDA's own advisory committee was not on board with fourth doses in people 50 to 65. Pfizer actually only applied for the fourth dose in people over 65. But the FDA oddly granted them the authorization for people all the way down to age 50. And all the studies ignored natural immunity. That is a powerful deterrent against COVID. If you've had COVID, you probably don't need a booster. And if you're um, over age 65 and you had COVID recently, I don't think you need a fourth dose. But for people who have not had COVID and they're over 65, I do recommend a booster. I remember you've, you've criticized before that you think the timelines are too compressed. Do you think that the, this chart should be more spread out? That's right. We got the interval wrong with good intentions. They tried to get the studies done quickly. So they put the first two doses of the vaccine just three and four weeks apart. There's no vaccine out there we give that close together. When you spread them out further, eight weeks or 12 weeks apart, you have lower side effects and better immunity. And that's what we should have recommended a long time ago. Actually, the uh, CDC just recently 
issued that recommendation said, look, try to space them out by about eight weeks. They did it quietly. It was almost to save face. Ironically, it was after 270 million people got the vaccine. Um, I mentioned kid crud. I've had a, a minorly sick kid, and I talked to my pediatrician, um, and then he said 20% of his patients have reported, or their parents have reported having fevers. Calls are coming in left and right. Does my kid have COVID? What does my kid have? Is this just a, as simple as kids weren't exposed for a couple of years if they were in schools with masks, for example? It, it does seem, and there's an, a growing thought that because we put kids and a lot of Americans in a bubble for nearly two years, that now that people are out and about, they do have some sort of increased susceptibility. We've been bracing for a long time, for example, for a really bad flu season. Luckily, the virus circulating right now is at levels we normally see at this point in a flu season and not worse. But there is something to increase susceptibility when you've been um, sheltered for so long from respiratory pathogens that give you low level exposure and possibly some level of immunity. And is, has it been a weird flu season? I, I understand that things are peaking a little bit late. That's right. We're about where we normally are during a flu season. People forget that there's a whole bunch of respiratory viruses that circulate. RSV, Coxsackie virus, uh, a whole group of different viruses that cause common cold-like illnesses. So it can be difficult to distinguish. The reason to get COVID tested is to know that you've got good natural immunity against COVID, or at least the current variant, and you can feel good about that once you've recovered. Dr. Marty McCary, Johns Hopkins University Professor of uh, Public Health Policy and Management and Surgery, the author of several books, including uh, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare and How to Fix It. Dr. McCary, thank you very much again. Good to be with you, Chris. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, some good news with Tanya J. Powers. More than 100 graduates of Wiley College won't have student debt to worry about anymore. At graduation last weekend, the school's president, Herman J. Felton Jr., announced that an anonymous donor had paid off their debt, which was a combined $300,000. You are debt-free. You do not owe the college a penny. If you have a balance, you had a balance. In a news release, Felton said the school communicates with donors to help pay off student loans so graduates can start their after-college experience with less debt. Wiley is a private, historically black college and was founded in 1873 in Marshall, Texas, about 40 miles west of Shreveport, Louisiana. It's also the school whose 1935 debate inspired the 2007 film The Great Debaters, which starred Denzel Washington. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Will Kane. What's on your mind? A conspiracy of gossip. A house of lies. From where did Russia, Russia, Russia originate? Special counsel John Durham's investigation into the origins of the Russia collusion hoax. The indictment in the media 
The former President Donald Trump was in collusion with Vladimir Putin, in collusion with Russia to swing an American election. Where, in fact, did that hoax originate? That's the question for special counsel John Durham. It is proceeding slowly, methodically, but I think intentionally. And right now, it appears there are two avenues to finding the origins of Russia, Russia, Russia. On one hand, there is the prosecution of Michael Sussman, the former Clinton campaign attorney who took information to the FBI, manufactured computer driven data to the FBI without telling the FBI that he represented Hillary Clinton and saying, hey, you might need to look into Donald Trump. On the other hand, a conspiracy of gossip. Three Colleagues, three work friends get together for a drink in Europe and share gossip, secondhand knowledge, thirdhand knowledge about what might have gone down in a hotel in Russia with one of the most famous men on the planet, Donald Trump. That gossip makes its way unverified, unchecked, uninvestigated to Christopher Steele. Igor Danchenko was one of the members of that gossip drink circle happy hour, and he passed it to Christopher Steele. Christopher Steele laundered that through CIA spook language and turned it into the Steele dossier. BuzzFeed's news cycle was born and a conspiracy was birthed. John Durham tracking two different lanes that lead to the origins of Russia, Russia, Russia. We can only hope when you pull on those two strings, you get to the ultimate place of accountability. Who benefited? Who was behind? Who hired? Who employed? Who originated Russia, Russia, Russia? I think we'll find the answer is Clinton. For more of this investigation in the coming weeks, subscribe to the Will Cain Podcast. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Find it now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.